Section 7 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1893 to 1896. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Thomas. Section 7. Grover, Cleveland. December 2, 1895. Part 1. To the Congress of the United States. The present assemblage of the legislative branch of our government occurs at a time when the interests of our people and the needs of the country give especial prominence to the condition of our foreign relations and the exigencies of our national finances. The reports of the heads of the several administrative departments of the government fully and plainly exhibit what has been accomplished within the scope of their respective duties and present such recommendations for the betterment of our country's condition as patriotic and intelligent labor and observation suggest. I therefore deem my executive duty adequately performed at this time by presenting to the Congress the important phases of our situation as related to our intercourse with foreign nations and a statement of the financial problems which confront us, omitting, except as they are related to these topics, any reference to departmental operations. I earnestly invite, however, not only the careful consideration, but the severely critical scrutiny of the Congress and my fellow countrymen to the reports concerning these departmental operations. If justly and fairly examined, they will furnish proof of assiduous and painstaking care for the public welfare. I press the recommendations they contain upon the respectful attention of those charged with the duty of legislation, because I believe their adoption would promote the people's good. By amendatory tariff legislation in January last, the Argentine Republic, recognizing the value of the large market open to the free importation of its wools under our last tariff act, has admitted certain products of the United States to entry at reduced duties. It is pleasing to note that the efforts we have made to enlarge the exchanges of trade on a sound basis of mutual benefit are in this instance appreciated by the country from which our woolen factories draw their needful supply of raw material. The missions boundary dispute between the Argentine Republic and Brazil referred to the President of the United States as arbiter during the term of my predecessor, and which was submitted to me for determination, resulted in an award in favor of Brazil upon the historical and documentary evidence presented, thus ending a long protracted controversy and again demonstrating the wisdom and desirability of settling international boundary disputes by recourse to friendly arbitration. Negotiations are progressing for the revival of the United States and Chilean Claims Commission, whose work was abruptly terminated last year by the expiration of the stipulated time within which awards could be made. The resumption of specie payments by Chile is a step of great interest and importance, both in its direct consequences upon her own welfare and as evidencing the ascendancy of sound financial principles in one of the most influential of the South American republics. The close of the momentous struggle between China and Japan, while relieving the diplomatic agents of this government, 
from the delicate duty they undertook at the request of both countries of rendering such service to the subjects of either belligerent within the territorial limits of the other as our neutral position permitted developed a domestic condition in the chinese empire which has caused much anxiety and called for prompt and careful attention either as a result of weak control by the central government over the provincial administrations following a diminution of traditional governmental authority under the stress of an overwhelming national disaster or as a manifestation upon good opportunity of the aversion of the chinese population to all foreign ways and undertakings there have occurred in widely separated provinces of china serious outbreaks of the old fanatical spirit against foreigners which unchecked by local authorities if not actually connived at by them have culminated in mob attacks on foreign missionary stations causing much destruction of property and attended with personal injuries as well as loss of life although but one american citizen was reported to have been actually wounded and although the destruction of property may have fallen more heavily upon the missionaries of other nationalities than our own it plainly behooved this government to take the most prompt and decided action to guard against similar or perhaps more dreadful calamities befalling the hundreds of american mission stations which have grown up throughout the interior of china under the temperate rule of toleration custom and imperial edict the demands of the united states and other powers for the degradation and punishment of the responsible officials of the respective cities and provinces who by neglect or otherwise had permitted uprisings and for the adoption of stern measures by the emperor's government for the protection of the life and property of foreigners were followed by the disgrace and dismissal of certain provincial officials found derelict in duty and the punishment by death of a number of those adjudged guilty of actual participation in the outrages this government also insisted that a special american commission should visit the province where the first disturbances occurred for the purpose of investigation the latter commission formed after much opposition has gone overland from tientsin accompanied by a suitable chinese escort and by its demonstration of the readiness and ability of our government to protect its citizens will act it is believed as a most influential deterrent of any similar outbreaks the energetic steps we have thus taken are all the more likely to result in future safety to our citizens in china because the imperial government is i am persuaded entirely convinced that we desire only the liberty and protection of our own citizens and redress for any wrongs they may have suffered and that we have no ulterior designs or objects political or otherwise china will not forget either our kindly service to her citizens during her late war nor the fact that while furnishing all the facilities at our command to further the negotiation of a peace between her and japan we sought no advantages and interposed no counsel the governments of both china and japan have in special dispatches transmitted through their respective diplomatic representatives expressed in a most pleasing manner their grateful appreciation of our assistance to their citizens during the unhappy struggle and of the value of our aid in paving the way to their resumption of peaceful relations 
the customary cordial relations between this country and France have been undisturbed, with the exception that a full explanation of the treatment of John L. Waller by the expeditionary military authorities of France still remains to be given. Mr. Waller, formerly United States Consul at Tamatov, remained in Madagascar after his term of office expired, and was apparently successful in procuring business concessions from the Hovas of greater or less value. After the occupation of Tamatov and the declaration of martial law by the French, he was arrested upon various charges, among them that of communicating military information to the enemies of France, was tried and convicted by a military tribunal, and sentenced to twenty years' imprisonment. Following the course, justified by abundant precedents, this government requested from that of France the record of the proceedings of the French tribunal which resulted in Mr. Waller's condemnation. This request has been complied with to the extent of supplying a copy of the official record from which appear the constitution and organization of the court, the charges as formulated, and the general course and result of the trial, and by which it is shown that the accused was tried in open court and was defended by counsel. But the evidence adduced in support of the charges which was not received by the French Minister for Foreign Affairs till the first week in October, has thus far been withheld, the French government taking the ground that its production in response to our demand would establish a bad precedent. The efforts of our ambassador to procure it, however, though impeded by recent changes in the French ministry, have not been relaxed, and it is confidently expected that some satisfactory solution of the matter will shortly be reached. Meanwhile, it appears that Mr. Waller's confinement has every alleviation which the state of his health and all the other circumstances of the case demand or permit. In agreeable contrast to the difference above noted, respecting a matter of common concern, where nothing is sought except a mutually satisfactory outcome, as the true merits of the case require, is the recent resolution of the French chambers favoring the conclusion of a permanent treaty of arbitration between the two countries. An invitation has been extended by France to the government and people of the United States to participate in a great international exposition at Paris in 1900 as a suitable commemoration of the close of this the world's marvelous century of progress. I heartily recommend its acceptance together with such legislation as will adequately provide for a due representation of this government and its people on the occasion. Our relations with the states of the German Empire are, in some respects, typical of a condition of things elsewhere found in countries whose production and trade are similar to our own. The close rivalries of competing industries the influence of a delusive doctrine that the internal development of a nation is promoted and its wealth increased by a policy which, in undertaking to reserve its home markets for the exclusive use of its own producers, necessarily obstructs their sales in foreign markets and prevents free access to the products of the world. The desire to retain trade in time-worn ruts, regardless of the inexorable laws of new needs and changed conditions of demand and supply, and our own halting tardiness in inviting a freer exchange of commodities, and by this means imperiling our footing 
in the external markets naturally open to us have created a situation somewhat injurious to American export interests, not only in Germany, where they are perhaps most noticeable, but in adjacent countries. The exports affected are largely American cattle and other food products, the reason assigned for unfavorable discrimination being that their consumption is deleterious to the public health. This is all the more irritating in view of the fact that no European state is as jealous of the excellence and wholesomeness of its exported food supplies as the United States, nor so easily able, on account of inherent soundness, to guarantee those qualities. Nor are these difficulties confined to our food products designed for exportation. Our great insurance companies, for example, having built up a vast business abroad and invested a large share of their gains in foreign countries in compliance with the local laws and regulations then existing, now find themselves within a narrowing circle of onerous and unforeseen conditions and are confronted by the necessity of retirement from a field thus made unprofitable if, indeed, they are not summarily expelled, as some of them have lately been from Prussia. It is not to be forgotten that international trade cannot be one-sided. Its currents are alternating, and its movements should be honestly reciprocal. Without this, it almost necessarily degenerates into a device to gain advantage or a contrivance to secure benefits with only the semblance of a return. In our dealings with other nations, we ought to be open-handed and scrupulously fair. This should be our policy as a producing nation, and it plainly becomes us as a people who love generosity and the moral aspects of national good faith and reciprocal forbearance. These considerations should not, however, constrain us to submit to unfair discrimination nor silently acquiesce in vexatious hindrances to the enjoyment of our share of the legitimate advantages of proper trade relations. If an examination of the situation suggests such measures on our part as would involve restrictions similar to those from which we suffer, the way to such a course is easy. It should, however, by no means be lightly entered upon since the necessity for the inauguration of such a policy would be regretted by the best sentiment of our people, and because it naturally and logically might lead to consequences of the gravest character. I take pleasure in calling to your attention the encomiums bestowed on those vessels of our new navy, which took part in the notable ceremony of the opening of the Kiel Canal. It was fitting that this extraordinary achievement of the newer German nationality should be celebrated in the presence of America's exposition of the latest developments of the world's naval energy. Our relations with Great Britain, always intimate and important, have demanded during the past year even a greater share of consideration than is usual. Several vexatious questions were left undetermined by the decision of the Bering Sea Arbitration Tribunal. The application of the principles laid down by that august body has not been followed by the results they were intended to accomplish, either because the principles themselves lacked in breadth and definiteness, or because their execution has been more or less imperfect. 
Much correspondence has been exchanged between the two governments on the subject of preventing the exterminating slaughter of seals. The insufficiency of the British patrol of Bering Sea under the regulations agreed on by the two governments has been pointed out, and yet only two British ships have been on police duty during this season in those waters. The need of a more effective enforcement of existing regulations as well as the adoption of such additional regulations as experience has shown to be absolutely necessary to carry out the intent of the award, have been earnestly urged upon the British government, but thus far without effective results. In the meantime, the depletion of the seal herds by means of pelagic hunting has so alarmingly progressed that unless their slaughter is at once effectively checked, their extinction within a few years seems to be a matter of absolute certainty. The understanding by which the United States was to pay, and Great Britain to receive, a lump sum of $425,000 in full settlement of all British claims for damages arising from our seizure of British sealing vessels unauthorized under the award of the Paris Tribunal of Arbitration, was not confirmed by the last Congress which declined to make the necessary appropriation. I am still of the opinion that this arrangement was a judicious and advantageous one for the government, and I earnestly recommend that it again be considered and sanctioned. If, however, this does not meet with the favor of Congress, it certainly will hardly dissent from the proposition that the government is bound by every consideration of honor and good faith to provide for the speedy adjustment of these claims by arbitration as the only other alternative. A treaty of arbitration has therefore been agreed upon, and will be immediately laid before the Senate, so that in one of the modes suggested a final settlement may be reached. Notwithstanding that Great Britain originated the proposal to enforce international rules for the prevention of collisions at sea, based on the recommendations of the Maritime Conference of Washington and concurred in, suggesting March 11, 1895 as the date to be set by proclamation for carrying these rules into general effect, Her Majesty's government, having encountered opposition on the part of British shipping interests, announced its inability to accept that date, which was consequently cancelled. The entire matter is still in abeyance without prospect of a better condition in the near future. The commissioners appointed to mark the international boundary in Passamaquoddy Bay, according to the description of the Treaty of Ghent, have not yet fully agreed. The completion of the preliminary survey of that Alaskan boundary, which follows the contour of the coast from the southernmost point of Prince of Wales Island until it strikes the 141st meridian, at or near the summit of Mount St. Elias, awaits further necessary appropriation, which is urgently recommended. This survey was undertaken under the provisions of the convention entered into by this country and Great Britain, July 22, 1892, and the supplementary convention of February 3, 1894. As to the remaining section of the Alaskan boundary, which follows the 141st meridian, northwardly from Mount St. Elias to the frozen ocean, the settlement of which involves the physical location of the meridian mentioned, no conventional agreement has yet been made. The ascertainment of a given meridian at a particular point 
is a work requiring much time and careful observation and surveys. Such observations and surveys were undertaken by the United States Coast and Geodetic Survey in 1890 and 1891, while similar work in the same quarters, under British auspices, is believed to give nearly coincident results. But these surveys have been independently conducted, and no international agreement to mark those or any other parts of the 141st meridian by permanent monuments has yet been made. In the meantime, the valley of the Yukon is becoming a highway through the hitherto unexplored wilds of Alaska, and abundant mineral wealth has been discovered in that region, especially at or near the junction of the boundary meridian with the Yukon and its tributaries. In these circumstances, it is expedient and, indeed, imperative that the jurisdictional limits of the respective governments in this new region be speedily determined. Her Britannic Majesty's government has proposed a joint delimitation of the 141st meridian by an international commission of experts, which, if Congress will authorize it and make due provision therefor, can be accomplished with no unreasonable delay. It is impossible to overlook the vital importance of continuing the work already entered upon and supplementing it by further effective measures looking to the exact location of this entire boundary line. I call attention to the unsatisfactory delimitation of the respective jurisdictions of the United States and the Dominion of Canada in the Great Lakes at the approaches to the narrow waters that connect them. The waters in question are frequented by fishermen of both nationalities, and their nets are there used. Owing to the uncertainty and ignorance as to the true boundary, vexations, disputes, and injurious seizures of boats and nets by Canadian cruisers often occur, while any positive settlement thereof by an accepted standard is not easily to be reached. A joint commission to determine the line in those quarters on a practical basis by measured courses following range marks on shore is a necessity for which immediate provision should be made. It being apparent that the boundary dispute between Great Britain and the Republic of Venezuela concerning the limits of British Guyana was approaching an acute stage, a definite statement of the interest and policy of the United States as regards the controversy seemed to be required both on its own account and in view of its relations with the friendly powers directly concerned. In July last, therefore, a dispatch was addressed to our ambassador at London for communication to the British government in which the attitude of the United States was fully and distinctly set forth. The general conclusions therein reached and formulated are in substance that the traditional and established policy of this government is firmly opposed to a forcible increase by any European power of its territorial possessions on this continent, that this policy is well-rounded in principle and is strongly supported by numerous precedents, that as a consequence the United States is bound to protest against the enlargement of the area of British Guyana in derogation of the rights and against the will of Venezuela, that considering the disparity in strength of Great Britain and Venezuela, 
the territorial dispute between them can be reasonably settled only by friendly and impartial arbitration, and that the resort to such arbitration should include the whole controversy, and is not satisfied if one of the powers concerned is permitted to draw an arbitrary line through the territory in debate and to declare that it will submit to arbitration only the portion lying on one side of it. In view of these conclusions, the dispatch in question called upon the British government for a definite answer to the question whether it would or would not submit the territorial controversy between itself and Venezuela in its entirety to impartial arbitration. The answer of the British government has not yet been received, but is expected shortly, when further communication on the subject will probably be made to the Congress. Early in July last, an uprising against the government of Hawaii was promptly suppressed. Martial law was forthwith proclaimed, and numerous arrests were made of persons suspected of being in sympathy with the Royalist Party. Among these were several citizens of the United States, who were either convicted by a military court and sentenced to death, imprisonment, or fine, or were deported without trial. The United States, while denying protection to such as had taken the Hawaiian oath of allegiance, insisted that martial law, though altering the forms of justice, could not supersede justice itself, and demanded stay of execution until the proceedings had been submitted to this government, and knowledge obtained therefrom, that our citizens had received fair trial. The death sentences were subsequently commuted or were remitted on condition of leaving the islands. The cases of certain Americans arrested and expelled by arbitrary order without formal charge or trial have had attention, and in some instances have been found to justify remonstrance and a claim for indemnity, which Hawaii has not thus far conceded. Mr. Thurston, the Hawaiian minister, having furnished this government abundant reason for asking that he be recalled, that course was pursued, and his successor has lately been received. The deplorable lynching of several Italian laborers in Colorado was naturally followed by international representations, and I am happy to say that the best efforts of the state in which the outrages occurred have been put forth to discover and punish the authors of this atrocious crime. The dependent families of some of the unfortunate victims invite by their deplorable condition gracious provision for their needs. These manifestations against helpless aliens may be traced through successive stages to the vicious padroni system, which, unchecked by our immigration and contract labor statutes, controls these workers from the moment of landing on our shores and farms them out in distant and often rude regions, where their cheapening competition in the fields of breadwinning toil brings them into collision with other labor interests. While welcoming, as we should, those who seek our shores to merge themselves in our body politic and win personal competence by honest effort, we cannot regard such assemblances of distinctively alien laborers, hired out in the mass to the profit of alien speculators and shipped hither and thither, as the prospect of gain may dictate, as otherwise than repugnant to the spirit of our civilization, deterrent to individual advancement, and hindrances to the build-up of stable communities resting upon the wholesome ambitions of the citizen 
and constituting the prime factor in the prosperity and progress of our nation. If legislation can reach this growing evil, it certainly should be attempted. Japan has furnished abundant evidence of her vast gain in every trait and characteristic that constitutes a nation's greatness. We have reason for congratulation in the fact that the government of the United States, by the exchange of liberal treaty stipulations with the new Japan, was the first to recognize her wonderful advance and to extend to her the consideration and confidence due to her national enlightenment and progressive character. The boundary dispute which lately threatened to embroil Guatemala and Mexico has happily yielded to Pacific councils, and its determination has, by the joint agreement of the parties, been submitted to the sole arbitration of the United States Minister to Mexico. The Commission, appointed under the Convention of February 18, 1889, to set new monuments along the boundary between the United States and Mexico, has completed its task. As a sequel to the failure of a scheme for the colonization in Mexico of Negroes, mostly immigrants from Alabama under contract, a great number of these helpless and suffering people, starving and smitten with contagious disease, made their way or were assisted to the frontier, where, in wretched plight, they were quarantined by the Texas authorities. Learning of their destitute condition, I directed rations to be temporarily furnished them through the War Department. At the expiration of their quarantine, they were conveyed by the railway companies at comparatively nominal rates to their homes in Alabama. Upon my assurance, in the absence of any fund available for the cost of their transportation, that I would recommend to Congress an appropriation for its payment. I now strongly urge upon Congress the propriety of making such an appropriation. It should be remembered that the measures taken were dictated not only by sympathy and humanity, but by a conviction that it was not compatible with the dignity of this government that so large a body of our dependent citizens should be thrown for relief upon the charity of a neighboring state. End of section 7. Recording by Paul Thomas.